Hi, I'm Jason Sachs. Welcome to Classic Comics Cavalcade. This week, I talked to J. Michael Catron, who's a senior editor at Fantagraphics Books, whose work includes republishing EC collections, as well as collections of Disney comics, including some of the classic Carl Barks and Don Rosa collections. Over the course of the next hour, Mike and I talk about some of the interesting ins and outs of EC Comics, including his rediscovery of some great cartoonists and the story of that odd lettering that many EC Comics include, as well as background stories about his life running his own Apple Comics and about how Fanographics came to manage Love and Rockets and a kind of a uh, scary behind-the-scenes story about them desecrating some now-classic original comics. Uh, show notes are available at comicscavalcade.tumblr.com. Please sh- be sure to leave feedback on iTunes, and I hope you enjoy the show. Thanks. Congratulations on, was it 22 volumes now? 24 volumes? Yeah, of the yeah. Collection? We're just... Uh, internally here we're doing volume 26 i think and you're a little over halfway right no we, we passed the halfway mark okay we've got in the neighborhood of 15 volumes to go okay to wrap up the whole thing okay how do you see it at this what was the what was the initial motivation to picking up the license and going with this different take than that had been done before ec comics were and are remain you know a high point in the history of comics publishing in that the stories were literate and well constructed and dealt with themes that weren't that were more adult themes mm-hmm. especially you know, for their time nobody yeah. in EC Comics was worrying about who whose secret identity was going to be in jeopardy or whatever superhero tropes you want to think about they just weren't in that stream at all so to keep that kind of stuff available i think is important for the understanding of the development of comics and the art form and they had always been collected sort of in this sort of fan mentality package which is let's reproduce the comic book just as it came out on the newsstand gary kim eric me, I would say most of the people who work at Fanographics are more oriented towards the the artist and the writer, the creative people and their work. And and when you go to to look at somebody's work, you want to see you know a breadth of of what they've done. So you know, in a sense, it's it's kind of a logical way to to present them as here's this artist's. EC work, and we there's plenty of it, so that we can do multiple volumes for most of the key artists that were at EC. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when you come at it from that, that that almost seems like the more logical way right. to package this stuff, right? right? Than try to reproduce a comic book that was on the stands for four to six weeks uh, in the summer of 1954, where you've got stories from four different artists. In the sense, it was arbitrary what was in the original issues, anyway. Yeah, someone had been laid on a deadline. I, I don't. I mean, if, uh, talk. Uh, they planned what was going to be in the issues. It mm-hmm. wasn't arbitrary uh, in that sense, but a certain amount of flexibility. So if they did have a problem, they they might have been able to move a story around in, inside one of the horror titles or something like that. I mean, and then for all I know, that may have happened because somebody might have been late, so they might have, you know. But, 
Right. Because it was it was genre material. So uh, I don't know of it uh, off the top of my head. I can't think of an example of that actually happening. But it was structured in a way that if needed to be, it probably could have happened. Ten years later, though, I'm sure that sort of thing did happen to Warren. Mm-hmm. Creepy and eerie. Mm-hmm. Stuff like that. But, you know, basically, you know, TC, EC was a pretty tightly run ship. Uh, and certainly uh, the Feldstein titles were, he was very methodical about the way he planned them out, who he assigned the stories to, who he wrote the stories for. He actually wrote the stories mm-hmm. for the particular artist playing to that artist's strengths mm-hmm. or interests. Uh, it was very, uh, you know, deliberate about what he did. Yeah, you see the the targetedness for, with someone like the Craig stories or Cayman stories, especially where they had just skills that were really well uh, played against with the stories. Right. Yeah. But speaking of Cayman, now Cayman, he was a guy who had a very contemporary style that was well suited for advertising illustration. Mm-hmm. In fact, he did a lot of advertising illustration after he left DC. But he didn't have he, he didn't have the the spark I guess you would say for doing certain types of stories mm-hmm. like a science fiction story mm-hmm. where you might give it something to Williamson or to Wood or somebody like that or just pop yeah and you know give me lots of alien landscapes and give me lots of rocket ships and uh, all that kind of stuff. Now, Cayman wasn't that kind of an artist, so his science fiction stories tended to be more domestically oriented more set in uh, in contemporary times and they worked just fine mm-hmm. you know and it was it was it was Feldstein and Gaines who recognized that certain artists were better with certain material and then they shaped that material customized that material for that artist and that's one of the reasons that that EC did as well as it did is because there was this back and forth between the artists and the writer so that they were they were playing off you know, each other's strength. I tend to think there's something in the fact that Feldstein was writing so quickly. He had to write, what, four four or five scripts a week, sometimes 15 a month. And because of that, it was a lot of... He had to trust his artists, but he also had a lot of energy and life to his stories. Some artists, some writers fall into the rep, trap of repetition. And certainly some of those stories are a bit repetitious, but he was very good at avoiding that. Yeah, well, Feldstein was a maniac when it came to writing. And he, I don't know if you know how, how the, they worked, but the, the typical day, as Feldstein described it, I wasn't there, so I didn't witness it, would be for him to come in, sit down with Bill Gaines, who was the publisher and editor-in-chief, I guess. And then Gaines would have what he called springboards, which were just story ideas, uh, plot ideas. And they, the two of them, would sit down in the morning and just have a conversation back and forth, sort of hammer out the, the story. And by lunchtime, they would be done, sometime sooner. And then Feldstein would go and sit down and, and write the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, he didn't write the story like you might expect in that he didn't ever sat down at a typewriter and started banging away he took art sheets pages of bristol board and started with a pencil and started writing the captions and the word balloons right on the the paper now Mm -hmm. he's doing this in pencil in his own handwriting Mm -hmm. you know according to him he sort of just with this idea in mind 
than knowing that this story had to be six pages or seven pages, eight pages, whatever it was, but it was usually one of those three lengths. He would just write the whole thing out, uh, printed on the art page, and then turn it into games at the end of the day. So he would write a you know a six to eight page story, actually on three the four days a week, right on the boards, mm. and then those boards would be given to Roten, mm-hmm. and he would letter right over. So the lettering happened even before the art happened. Right. Huh. This was a crazy way to make comics. Yeah. But it worked. It kept them on schedule. And, you know, and Feldstein thought it was such a natural way that he almost was a little confused about any other way to do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Which is, of course, not at all the way we do it these days. <laughs> or you, I don't think anybody was doing it that uh, that way then. But, yeah, so then, then, then he would turn the, the completed written handwritten story in. Jim Roten would, would pick it up, take it home, letter it, bring it back in, and then that story would be given to Jack Kamen or Jack Davis or uh, Wally Wood or whoever mm-hmm. it was intended for. That that artist would take it home. And that's what they had. They had they didn't have a separate script. There weren't any descriptions of what, what's in the panel. But by the same token, what they had was basically a layout mm-hmm. because the lettering was fixed. They couldn't mm-hmm. move that around. They knew what they had to draw inside the panel. So they knew what they had to draw based on the caption and the dialogue and whatever conversation they might have when they have when they pick up the the artwork. And did they have complete freedom to draw what they wanted to draw inside those panels or was did they have some layout guides? Well, that's for the Feldstein artists. Okay. I mean Kurtzman, <laughs> Kurtzman is artists, a whole different so that's thing. a different story. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So for the Kurtzman artists, and, and they were some of the same artists, you know, mm-hmm. but Kurtzman did it differently, and he provided layouts. As an artist, you were bound to follow Kurtzman's layouts or else, mm-hmm. and uh, he provided layouts, he provided overlays for coloring and stuff, and his stuff was not Leroy lettered. It was lettered by Ben Oda. Kurtzman didn't like the aesthetic of the Leroy lettering, he thought, as a lot of us do that it was just too cold and mechanical and uh and ben oda was a great choice for a letter ben was a terrific letterer yeah some uh, of those stories have this some of the greatest lettering of all time yeah. um well he lettered uh, i believe uh, he he lettered didn't he letter prince valiant i think, I think he, right. he did i know he lettered the spirit and uh you know i i met him um you know briefly when i worked at dc back in the 70s yeah he was a real workhorse Ben Oda was the guy who would get the keys to artists' apartments. And he would go in the middle of the night if he knew that something was waiting and needed to be done. He'd go in. Oh, wow. Uh, and they'd let him in. Work, man. The, he'd go into the artist's drawing board and sit down and, and letter. Oh, that's, wow. <laughs> you know, it's like it's the, Christmas the shoemaker and the elves. You yeah. <laughs> I don't know how often that happened, but apparently it did happen. Yeah, but like his his work on the war comics is wonderful. That's the work I found myself coming back to now. The big spark for me to have a love for the Kurtzman war comics was the interview that I think you were still on the journal then, Journal Fifty Three, when with the long Kurtzman interview. Mm-hmm. I remember it was on thicker paper. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I was in high school at the time, and the idea of this of this magazine celebrating this life of this artist just like jumped out at me as someone I needed to pay attention to and it was a revelation I remember there's a long essay on his story of the big if which is one of the great war stories ever I was just impressed 
more than a few a, levels. Yeah, more that. than a war story though. It's it's a it's a philosophical story. Well, yeah, and that's the, that's what's coming to is like coming back to it now as an adult. You know, with Graham, I hear well, it's a totally different attitude because um, yeah, it's it's a much more philosophical story, and it's also it feels so contemporary. Like there's nothing lost in the fact that it's the Korean War versus the Iraq War, in that the the universalness of the human experience is so strong. And it just shows the power of Kurtzman's writing. I don't know where all of that came from. Hmm. You know, I mean, we know we've we've read enough interviews with with the various CC people to know how the Feldstein Gaines dynamic worked. Kurtzman strikes me as a guy that might not have been all that keen on sitting down with Gaines at the beginning of the day and hashing out a story. Yeah, I think he had his own way of coming up with stories, but I can't really speak to what that is because I can't really. Really, it's not really clear to me how he went about writing a story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking about the book that Bill Shelley did about him, and I'm not sure it gave me a big revelation about where you know mid twenties age Kurtzman came up with this work, um, which almost makes it more intriguing in a way. Hmm. Certainly did his research. Oh yeah. Yeah, and you know. Uh, he was very fastidious about that. Mm-hmm. But so were his artists. So was Severin. Yeah, Severin Wood was uh, Wood's work, especially Wood. the Civil War work, is just immaculate in terms of the detail. Right. Even stories like Thermopylae, it's just the level of detail in that story is just right on. Almost looks like it could be a documentary. And if it's not, you still believe it anyway. Well, yeah, in a time when, in a time when the yeah, well, that's the magic of of comic art, right? <laughs> so, did you have anything that struck you reading rereading? Have you been? You, you probably rediscovered many of these stories. Well, um, I have. I have discovered many of these stories because when I was growing up, EC has, was long gone, and so I only ever got brief glimpses of EC material. Because I had been picking it up over the years in the, those like larger East Coast Comics reprints, and then I got the Co- Cochran sets. That's the only time I really read through them all. Right, and that's more bit less my story too. I mean, yeah. I got I got the EC reprints. There was uh, when I was going to college, um, there were head shops that sold underground comics, mm-hmm. and that's why I went and uh, went to the head shops. I went there for the comic books, <laughs> and, and at some point, I forget who it was now. Uh, but somebody put out EC reprints through the underground distribution yeah. system. Was it East Coast Comics? East Coast Comics. And, and um, I ended up picking up all those through Rust, uh, through Bud Plant. And and you know, by that time I I knew of EC. I'd read about EC, and but I hadn't really read EC, and other than Mad. So that was kind of my introduction to EC Comics. Were the was through the undergrounds because I was collecting underground. Mm-hmm. So that's really how I came to it. I didn't come to it at all through the through the uh, through the the new newsstands. I was I wasn't even born when EC started publishing when EC started the new trend. So so I've come to a lot of this as as uh, as we've been packaging these books and I've been going through them. A lot of stories I'm reading for the first time, and you know that's great. <laughs> it's it's fun to know you're experiencing this like six months before I am. I'm just six months ahead of you. That's yeah, right. yeah, that's exactly it. It's like you've already seen season three of some show or something. <laughs> because uh, like stuff like um, early Ingalls' work, for example, was much more conventional than I 
see him as being. And I was just kind of struck by how, you know, I, I pictured him as one thing in my mind, and maybe this is the difference between, I don't know, early Beatles and mid-period Beatles, but that work was really a revelation. He was much more kind of classic mainstream and evolved into being the artist he would become. In a way, it's a tribute to Feldstein's editorial influence on him. It's also the fact that Feldstein let the artists be themselves. Ingalls is a great example of that because Ingalls was working, I think, as far back as Charlie Gaines for EC. He was doing westerns, and they were pretty unremarkable westerns. There mm-hmm. wasn't anything in there that was particularly interesting about them. And so then they start the new trend. I don't think they had any real sense that these stories were going to survive beyond their removal from the newsstand uh, when the next issue came out. I don't think anyone at the time I don't thought about it. I don't think anybody did. I mean, surprise, surprise, they've endured because they did reach an audience that appreciated them. Mm-hmm. And that audience grew up, and they've passed on that appreciation to the next generation. Well, and that's the interesting... One of the interesting things about EC to me is not just their greatness as a, a company, but the fact that, it, that the legend of it stayed alive and that it became such an institution in our comics knowledge. The same thing as the love of the good duck artist became so central to the to Barks and his centrality to the history of American comics. Just the, the passion grew into this adult love for the material and then the analysis that just made it richer. Right. Now, okay, so now we sound very erudite talking about that. Right. But you can say the same thing about superheroes. Little kids love Superman, and they well, grew up, and they love, kept on loving Superman and Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four. It's true that that sort of thing can transcend the immediate concern about getting a comic book on the stands and getting a story completed and off to the printer and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, Right, well, this is like, can, can popular art be great literature, and does it really matter? Well, does it? If you get happiness out of it, does it really matter? What if it, it informs well, your life? Okay, that's on a personal level. What about on a cultural level, when that overwhelms the culture? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, growing up, I would have been thrilled to see a superhero movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And now... And now you can see one every month. Right. <laughs> Well, my, I was thinking about this as I was coming over. I'm co- in the Fantagraphics office, this might be the one office anywhere in the world right now where people are not excited about seeing Avengers Endgame. Um, <laughs> yeah, Being overly cute about it. it. Nobody mentioned it to me. Well, one Maybe person about. asked me Friday if I was going to. No, and nobody else mentioned it. Though. So you might be right. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, I mean, to me, that's all right, too, right? People are going to enjoy things in di- on different levels. And well, uh, you know, I mean, I'm going to go see it. I'm, I'm sure I'll enjoy it. And that's not to say that we're against it. It's just not a major concern around here because we have uh, we have our other irons in the fire and our attention is, is elsewhere. But do you think that ECs are... This is a d- weird question. Do you think ECs are objectively better than the other comics of their time? Or maybe tighter because of the James Dean effect where they all where the line died and therefore it never had a time chance to get bad or do you feel like um, there's certainly a lot of other great work out there that doesn't get the same level of attention Bob no, Powell's think, work think, for example I, I think EC's 
are objectively or demonstrably better as comics, uh, as storytelling. Um, they certainly had the best artists, uh, not to take anything away from other artists who are working for other companies, but look at that roster of talent at DC, and it's killer. Wood, Kurtzman, Davis, uh, you know, uh, Engels, um, and now of course I'm I'm halting. But can, George Evans, yeah, Joe George, Orlando. Evans, George Evans was terrific, really underappreciated. Yeah, he's a nice guy too. I met him. You know, that was just a stellar group of people mm-hmm. who were just drawing their hearts out. So yeah, yeah, he, Gaines and, and Feldstein put together this small group of people. And then they just produced some of the best stories around. They gave them the framework to be great. Now, they weren't the best lettering company. <laughs> uh, Charlie Gaines. Uh, he was the one, if you go back and look at the first Wonder Woman comics, they were all Leroy lettered. Right. And that was that was all American comics. And that was, uh, his name was Jim Roten. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. W-R-O-T-E-N. My understanding is he was a Leroy lettering salesman, and he got this gig doing stuff for Gaines. And then when Gaines split off from DC, he just kept him on. And so this guy had a career through All American and through EC. Um, Basically, you know, Bill Gaines just kept him on. So what was the reason why Leroy lettering, though? I mean, was it cheaper than hiring hand letters? You know, I don't know that it was. I mean, I can't imagine that it was. I don't know. Maybe this guy just talked himself into a job. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> One of the lost legends of EC Comics. I, mean, I love I, the idea, though. I don't know anything at all behind it. But, you know, I mean, there are plenty of talented letters out there. But, you know, maybe they're not as many as I think there were. Yeah, it's kind of a specialty business, right? And, uh, and how, how do you fall into doing that as your career? Right. And no, but I, I, I think probably, you know, people didn't see themselves as letter. I mean, there's certain people who did, obviously. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was uh, Irish ben. Knapp and uh, Gaspar Saladino and mm-hmm. Ben Oda. Ben Oda, right. And, and lots of guys. Terrific letterers. But so, he was a Leroy lettering expert. I guess, it such was a a funny... I guess it was a consistency thing. Yeah. But, you know, I look at that stuff, it's really not very good Leroy Leather. <laughs> yeah, I, and I always wonder, is it the paste up? Like, because it looks like it's shifted maybe over the years or something? No, it's, no, I mean, it, it's put down on the page with ink. He just wasn't very good at spacing it. <laughs> <laughs> he really is not. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of, a, in a weird way, like a, a little bit of an Achilles heel for that work. I mean... I was, even now, I've been reading this stuff forever, right? But it's still a little off-putting me, to me at times. You have this wall of Leroy lettering and like at the top of a Tales from the Crypt story is a little... Right. Uh, well, yeah. you know, when, when I wasn't here when, when the contracts were signed, but when the contracts were signed, uh, Gary and Kim did have a discussion about re-lettering everything. And they decided ultimately not to. Uh, I mean, it's, pro- it's certainly the right decision, but at the same time there's uh it would have been nice to see the stuff relettered not me- well what would you substitute it with though you couldn't well, really I use computer lettering yeah um, but i mean certainly today you can letter with any font you like yeah but it's sterile in a whole different way right 
Right, it's something I find just really boring in modern comics. Is... I'm glad we're talking about lettering, but Leroy, <laughs> Leroy lettering right? was designed for architects for you know use on blueprints and things like that, where you needed to have neat, legible lettering, and a lot of people are not very good at that. So they came up with this mechanical lettering device that provides you with consistent, neat lettering, and it can be different sizes. How did this end up being like a big part of comics history? Because we have two major examples of Leroy lettering being in prominent comics. You mean All American and EC? Yeah, or Wonder Woman in particular. Well, it's, and it's I mean it's all traceable to one guy. Yeah, just the guy at it. <laughs> Who, like I said, my great connection. Just yeah. talked himself into a job. Yeah. And then you know, comics being comics, and if, presumably he's reliable. I understand he his wife worked with him. And then they would just give it to them, and they'd give it back to him on deadline. And it's like that a, was one yeah. less thing that the you know the editor or the publisher had to worry about because they knew they could rely on this guy. I anyway, mean, I, yeah. I, I'm I'm guessing here because I, I don't know anything about them, but yeah. And anyone who's ever worked in a deadline-based business can appreciate just having one less thing to worry about. Yeah, yeah, I can appreciate that myself. Yeah, because like you know, there's been a, a bit of a revival in the last few years of classic horror stories from other companies. And there's been some rediscoveries I've had. You know, the Marvel work gets republished more than others. And there, there's a lot of great artists coming out of that. I mean, early Gene Cohen, for example, is mm-hmm. wonderful. Uh, but yeah, there's something about the consistency and the tight quality of the EC line that stands out. And especially by the end when Krigstein jumps into the picture, too, and just brings it to a whole other level. He may not be the greatest of them all, but he's the most fascinating of them all in terms of his approach. Because I see so many echoes that we would see, so many echoes of Eisner that we saw um, rarely in the in more modern comics. That I wish we actually would see more. Yeah, um, Krigstein, uh, and I just did a talk on Krigstein at uh, San Diego Comic Fest a couple of months ago. But Krigstein um, was possibly the most intellectual in his approach to his work um, because he consciously wanted to be a fine artist you know he got into comics kind of sideways but uh, once he got into comics then he started looking at comics as well, he analyzed his work let me put it that way he analyzed his work as a way to tell a story mm-hmm. using techniques uh, artistic techniques uh, and even production techniques to tell a story, convey an emotion. And he was very conscious about doing all of that and very deliberate. Of course, you know the story of Master Race, the famous story about Master Race. And that was his attempt to tell a story in a way that he thought it would be most effective. That He was really excited by the material. It wasn't just a job. It wasn't just i got to get these six pages done by Friday. He really wanted to tell that story. And for Master Race in particular, he wanted to tell that story in a very specific way. It was partly inspired by the setting of the story, which was the, the subway, the New York City subway, uh, and, of course, the, the times of, uh, of when that, that story came out. People were not talking about the Holocaust at that, in that period of time. That was like 1950. 53 or 54, 54 right? maybe. Yeah. But around there. World War II was just barely 
10 years ago and there was a lot of just let's not talk about that right now kind of feeling uh, in the country and and here's Feldstein and Kriegstein saying you know what happened to those what happened to those people who were running the concentration camps well they made it into such a personal horror story yeah that's the thing. I mean, it's not about the larger picture of six million Jews. It's the one person having this moment of utter panic in the subway, seeing something that reminds them of their past and this abject fear that you feel when you're facing your personal abyss. And he portrays that so beautifully. It was an amazing story in and of itself, but it was also an amazing story for the time in which it appeared. It's just not something that... They weren't doing those kinds of stories on TV at that time. You, know, you Actually, you get into that kind of stuff just a few years later with Rod Serling of The Twilight Zone, not in 1954. Which is interesting, too. Yes, Serling really, and that captured the imagination, right? And, you know, there's a number of Twilight Zone episodes that are either directly about or allegorical for the Holocaust and racism. Right. This is before that. It was still in the era of McCarthyite conformity. Now, the other thing that, the other influence I'm going to throw in here to talk about that story, although I can't really nail it down, so don't, don't hold me to it, but um, by that time, DC, EC had been doing a lot of Ray Bradbury adaptations, mm-hmm. and Feldstein was very influenced by Bradbury. So I think you could make an argument for a Ray Bradbury influence on that, although not in the way hmm. you might think of Ed, when you first think of Ray Bradbury. But Bradbury did, like, revisits to childhood and things in the past. If not a direct influence, just a way of um, Feldstein maturing as a writer. I think he matured quite rapidly by adapting those Bradbury stories because Mm -hmm. he had to look at structure. Because his job, of course, was to cut it down to fit a six-page story. So you really have to look at structure to figure out how to do that. And I think it made him a better writer. And I think he would say the same thing. But all, Yeah, because Bradbury also brought this level of kind of grace, calm. Still, there's a stillness in the best of Bradbury's writing where you almost feel like the writing takes you to the core of yourself in some way. And uh, until you try to write in that milieu, you, it, you're missing something in your writing, at least in his case. So, yeah, I can see that. So. can see that. Uh, I'm also a big fan of Krigstein's story about the keys. Mm. It's a great story. Wh- which is non allegorical, but still just <laughs> spectacular. The level of detail and thought that went into that is overwhelming. He does such a great job of putting yourself in the mind of this criminal who just needs to find this one key to get himself out of something. And as his panic increases, the number of keys he pulls seems to increase. To a point where it, it, the number of keys matches the panic he feels. So that it becomes this work that works both directly and allegorically at the same time. And in that way, it's like a purely comic experience. Right. And he had to draw all those damn keys. You had to draw all those damn keys. <laughs> and they're all perfect. They're all immaculate. And they're all different. Yeah. Well, yeah I mean, different enough. <laughs> These days, you know, you just, you know, you draw a key. Uh-huh. And, and, then, and then Photoshop it, yeah. And somebody would argue that's more realistic. And I would say that's not the point. That's not the point, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's something about having to do that stuff by hand 
that forces you to be creative in different ways. That's something, something we've lost in the last 10, 15 years. I, I don't know if we've lost it because everything is at a much faster pace now. So it's a, it's a reasonable response to the constraints and the time pressures that we all feel. Speaking of another famous EC artist, Wallace Wood, famously, and I know I'm going to get the quote wrong, so said, how's it go? Never draw anything you can copy. Never copy anything you can trace. Never trace anything you can photostat and paste up. <laughs> All right. Now, that's the gist of it. I know I got it, the quote incorrect, but that's the idea. That was his response to the time pressure that he was under. He wasn't saying, be lazy. He was saying, here's how you can meet your deadline, which was all important if you want to get a paycheck. If you get a paycheck, you also want to have a life outside of drawing comics all day. So. Which Wood did not have, because he was he he was somebody who was was chained to the drawing board. Mm-hmm. Just that was his life. His his life was sitting at that board drawing. Yes, in theory, it might have enabled him to do that. But, you know, you look at a lot of his work, and he didn't follow his own advice. He yeah, right. He on all that stuff. And he was That's lightboxing it. a lot of it, but still in all, he was inking it. Especially it, those science fiction stories with the deep piping and everything on the spaceships. And the level of detail in some of that work is yeah. astounding. It, uh, it is. And it's it's way beyond what he was being paid for. <laughs> you know, he was paid to put out a, get, get a six-page story done in a, a week or two, whatever the time frame was. And he would do that, but he would spend so much time getting it right for the sake of himself, I think. Not so much the readers. I think he was doing it for his own satisfaction. Professional pride? Personal pride? Yes. And I think that's what you see in all these easy artists. And again, it's not unique to EC. A good Uh, artist does that. I'm looking at your desk and I'm seeing Blazing, the Blazing Combat collection there, for instance. And yeah, I mean, the early Warren books show the same thing. And really, any any good professional is going to do their work to the highest quality as possible. So here, what here's you do. Russ Heath, who did, what, one or two EC stories? So he's not really an EC artist. Um, but, of course, he made a name for himself. But he, he did that story for Warren, that uh, the one that he drew when he was living in the Playboy Mansion, Give and Take. He told me that when he drew that, he knew very well the other artists that were going to be in the issue. And he was trying to impress them. And he really just went all out on it. And it shows. That's one of the best stories he says, and and I think most people who have studied his work would would agree, that's one of the best stories he ever did in his career. And it's it's what, a six, eight-page story? I don't remember. But it's it's a short story. An amazing level of detail. Photograph. I mean, when I say photograph, yeah, detail, he took yeah. photographs for okay. that as as reference for that story, and that's why all the characters look like him because he was the one he was photographing. <laughs> but yeah, that's way beyond the call of duty. You know, you just love that when you see it on the artist. But you see that today's cartoonists are doing that too, in their own way, not to the level of uh, illustration, photographic style illustration like Russ Heath, but in their own way, they're putting the same level of thought and sweat and blood and all of that stuff yeah. into their work. I mean, this is the great thing about a cartoonist and about, about being a cartoonist is that 
that's you. There's nobody else. You know, you, you can't blame it on a director. You can't blame it on an actor who loved their lines. You can't blame it on a special effects that wasn't done right. That's you on the page. That's it. Well, you're putting your finger on a lot of why I've stayed a comics fan for all my life. Is because, aside from music, it's the closest you're going to be in a dialogue with a creator and really see their blood and sweat coming through directly to your eyes. And it doesn't even necessarily need to be an indie auteur type creator. You know, even the mainstream creators are doing work that's meaningful to them in some way. They're, and they may be doing professional jobs, but it's work that's some way impactful in their life, that reflects their life in some way. And I think it's, I'm, I tend to be very agnostic when it comes to commercial versus art, comics, etc. In part because I think the level of professionalism and craftsmanship will, will win out with the, highest, with the highest quality work, no matter what the genre is. I just think it's very important to embrace the multitude of it. You know, you've, on one hand, you have, I'll say, Noah Van Skyver doing these very personal, right. you know, very heartfelt comics. On the other hand, you might have someone like John Cassidy, for example, drawing this immaculately clean work. But Cassidy's still drawing from his own personal repertoire material. He's drawing this work that's meaningful to him, but also in a way that directly channels his way of seeing the world. Simon Hansel. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's great that there's a way to do that now. And I don't know if how many people are able to make a living at it and how many people are just, you know, hoping to make a living at it and finding a side gig in the meantime. The fact that so many people are trying is giving us such a wide variety of stuff to, to, to choose from, to read, different perspectives, all of that stuff. That wasn't the way it was during the EC period. You know, during the EC period, comics was a very specific way of getting something done because you had to have uh, a printer, you had to have a distributor, and of course those things were beyond the reach of any given writer or artist. So they had to be done on a corporate level. So, you know, of course you had your power powerhouses back then. You had DC, you had Fawcett, Timely Marvel, whatever they were called. So if you wanted to make a living as a comic artist, it was best that you dealt with one of those. If you yeah. could, if you couldn't, there were a lot of smaller companies that you know came and went uh, and were more or less reliable. But the big uh, powerhouses were the ones that, you know, and Dell. But there wasn't really any way for someone to, to come up with a little, you know, a little hinky kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. But today, there's, 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 there's a lot more venues. I mean, you could just skip print altogether and, and go online. Of course, the problem there, of course, is how do you get attention? Because so many other people are doing it, too. So there's... there's well, there yeah, there, there's work, but... Um... No, I just went to a show in Boston not too long ago. Um, the indie comic show at one of the art colleges out there. And there were so many people in their teens and 20s just doing personal work. And it was just exciting to see so many people doing work that just was meaningful to them. And putting it out there, you know, just literally just making, printing it on their home printer or printing out of some print shop for a hundred dollars and selling it for enough to make enough to produce the next book. And I don't think that's ever changed, but I think there's more of it now than there ever has been. And I think there's more of a, like a subculture of it yeah. than there well, has been. You know, and, you and look I just back think that's at the 90s. Thrilling. Yeah, it is. It is thrilling. You look back at the nineties and, and, and people were doing the mini comics, which kind of 
is the predecessor to what you just described. Wallace Wood tells a story about when he was a kid, he would draw comics. This was before comic books. These, he was drawing uh, based on what he saw in the newspaper, the Sunday comics and the daily comics. His mother would take those pages on a sewing machine and stitch them and make a small little pamphlet. Oh, so this, huh. you can see the sure the, I love the, the impulse yeah in I, the creative people. I don't know if that of, if you did this generation. I don't know if you did this too. I had my own. I when I was in elementary and middle school, I made my own little comics. And high school, I You're I right wrote now. a couple uh, mini comics that we published as like, you know, fanzine titles type superhero comic. Yeah, the impulse doesn't go away, but the the subject matter now and the personal approach to it. The ability uh, to find an audience is so much different. The ability to find a paying artist is still very difficult. Pay, pay, yeah, <laughs> paying might be a whole might be harder now than it ever has been. Right. Well, so Apple Comics didn't get a strong mention in my <laughs> book. Which you can tease me about as much as you like. Was your line kind of curated? Did you did you choose work that you think was commercial or oh when, would I, be... when I was doing Apple comics yeah like uh, the Wayne Van Zant uh, War comics for example did you have a sense early on there was an audience for him or did you just believe in the work as as its own work? Well, the answer is yes, both. Yeah, I mean I thought and I still think Wayne's a terrific artist and he had a very strong passion for this material. This is the comic he wanted to draw. So, okay, Wayne, go ahead and draw it. We were able to print some, and we were able to sell some, and, and then we kept it going for up until, until the end of Apple Comics itself. Same with Don Lomax and Vietnam Journal. This is what Don, Don, who's a Vietnam veteran, still at that time, and I don't know now, I haven't spoken with him in a while, but at that time still feeling the effects of his experience there. He wanted to draw those stories. You know, we had a little back and forth a little from, from time to time on story details or plot details where he would just put something in and um, I felt, um, or my wife felt, because she was actually his editor, that uh, it needed a little more explanation for someone who hadn't served in Vietnam. So she was able to give him that perspective, say, okay, that may be so, but can you explain why so that the reader isn't left with a question about what, what this means? I think I might have edited at the beginning and there was a, in, in the first story, or one of the first stories, there was a scene where a bar in uh, Saigon and somebody leaves a bomb on a table. It's a wooden table. We see that it's a fairly thick wooden table. The bomb goes off and the table protects our protagonist. Uh, maybe it was a grenade. Maybe it was a grenade. Uh, and I said to him, I said, would that, well, would that really protect you? And he said, yeah. Having never been in a room where a grenade went yeah. off, I took him at his word. <laughs> I think I remember that scene. I just remember, yeah, the, the energy and the passion and everything that he drew for the series. Right. Yeah, he brings those details, and, mm -hmm. and and anybody drawing from their experience brings in these details that someone who didn't have that experience suddenly gets to experience in a way that is revelatory. That's good storytelling, whether it's comics or movies or stage play or whatever. That's that's the essence of it. But in comics, if you have the ability to both write and draw, which is a blessed combination, wish I had it, uh, you know, can you can really create a world that people will appreciate and, and come and, and visit your world for 6, 8, 10, 500 pages, whatever it turns out to be. Right. You were publishing during a uh, 
the boom and the bust, right? Oh, at Apple? Yeah, yeah, of course I did. We were, what, like an eight-year run, nine-year run, eight, nine-year run, something like that. Scrambling day-to-day. It's no different working, for me, <laughs> financially, it was no different working paycheck to paycheck. I never knew, you know, if we were going to have enough money to do the next round of books. And we managed to, so that was great. But, you know, I love it because, you know, I'm talking to all these artists and writers and just enjoying the work so much and their enthusiasm gave me my enthusiasm. Yeah. Um, I, I really, uh, really did like it. Certain, I just wish I could have made a real living off of it. Yeah, there's certain <laughs> things you look back on and wish uh, at least we could bring them back into print these days. Some of it's still available online. Yes, I'm waiting for the Apple Comics Renaissance to. <laughs> you and every other publisher in my book. Exactly yeah, right. get line behind Broadway Comics and uh, right. whoever else. Yeah, do you have certain favorites, certain things that you uh, really enjoyed publishing? John Lomax, I think, was. Um, you know, he was with us from the beginning and from the beginning to the end. So, yeah, I have a, a strong affection for Don. And, of course, Wendy and Richard Peeney, because we actually got our start by picking up the ElfQuest series that followed the original Quest. Was it like a six-issue or eight-issue series? That, that Wendy That's why did. I always have you associate with them in my mind. Okay. Right, right. Well, that was, you know, that was just that was just something Richard and I worked out because I was working for them. I was I was mm-hmm. working. The, the final ElfQuest issue was, what, 21? And it was mostly like letters and stuff. So I had nothing to do with at all with the original quest. But that 21st issue was the one that I worked on. You know, I don't know what I did. I typed up letters or something. Or picked letters, I don't remember. But, I, you know, I had a little bit of production involvement on that, that final issue. And then Richard wanted to expand Warp Graphics into a broader-based publisher, which he had started before I got there with a the distant soil, stuff like that. So we... Basically, at some point, Richard decided that it would be better for them if they were able to concentrate on ElfQuest. And I think that's probably the right decision, considering what happened with ElfQuest after that. So basically, Apple Comics was initially a spin-off of Warp, where basically Hillary and I set up a company, and we went to all of the Warp people at the time who were working for Richard and said, would you like to be published by us? because Richard's going to get out of publishing the other stuff. And I think most of them came along. You know, we got Myth Adventures, and we got Thunder Bunny and ElfQuest, and that was enough right there to, to get things started. Um, we had Fantasy, which was a, an anthology title that Richard had started, which Don Lomax was a contributor to. That's how it got started. Uh, and then, of course, we, we expanded beyond that as time went on. So nice little run. Nine years. Yeah. Yeah, it was good. hundred... 50, 200 tiles, something like that? Something issues. like that. Something like that, yeah. So somewhere in the neighborhood of 200, maybe a little more. Unicorn Isle, that was another one that we had at the time. Don't turn this into a quiz on every title I ever published. Yeah, but. come on now, okay. <laughs> I mean, we got Troll Lords. There was consolidation going on. Kamiko sort of went out of business. So we it's got a Troll whole Lords. other interesting story Eagle. about Kamiko, yeah. You know, some other stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting time frame. You're mostly working on historical works now, right? Steadily, yeah. My regular assignments here at Fantagraphics uh, are the EC collections and the Disney stuff that we're doing. We're okay. doing a, a Barks collection that's ongoing. We're about halfway through that, uh, all the all the Barks Disney work. Yeah. We've got a, a line called Disney Masters now, mm-hmm. which I'm co-editing with uh, Keely McCarthy, who is um, also 
uh, the designer for the whole series. Um, and we do occasional other Disney books, like we did one on the Mickey Mouse 90th anniversary. We collected a lot of Floyd Godfords and stuff. Yeah, that stuff was wonderful. I love the yeah. Godfords and Mouse stuff. stuff. Yeah. The Barks, uh, obviously Barks is as good yeah. as it gets in comic We just completed uh, last year the Don Rosa Library, so we we now have in print all of Don Rosa's duck stuff, and we're coming out this fall with Volume 2 of The Complete Life and Times of Scrooge McDuck, which is a repackaging of material that was in the Don Rosa Library, but it's the specific story that he told that got him his first Eisner, I think. Maybe it was his first, I don't know. It got him an Eisner. It's funny, I was literally just chatting earlier today with my friend who's going to be writing about it for the Comics Journal website, the first volume of Scrooge McDuck. He's coming to it cold, he'd never read it before. And Keith is like, is this good? And I'm like, Keith, it's more than good. I don't want to bias you. I'm just, but one one word of advice: don't compare it to Barks, because you're talking about comparing to any. You compare anything to the greatest ever, it's going to lack in comparison. Just think of Don as Don. Match yourself as a new writer who had never read any Barks, because uh, from any other standpoint, that stuff is wonderful. I stand in in awe of Barks as much as anyone does. I mean, I can't say I'm the greatest Barks fan in the world because I'm sure there are people more fanatic about it than me. But I will tell you, when I was giving comics to my kids, my son really glommed on to Don Rosa's stuff more than Barks during that period. So it's a certain amount of exposure at a certain age, I suppose. And um, but he, my son, is still a big fan of, of Don Rosa, and uh, and he likes Barks too. But it's just like Don Rosa was first in his heart. Either way, they're great comics. Is the well, thing, they are great right? comics. They're objectively great comics. So I guess I, that passion thing you're talking so about. So I can, I can refute you. I can say yes, you can compare it to Bark. <laughs> <So>. Okay, <laughs> I'll let I'll let Keith take the attitude he wants to take with it then. <laughs> you get to work with the classics though. That's, I do. That's a nice spot to be Isn't at this great? point. Yeah. You know, some of the great, mean, literally some of the greatest comics ever. What you know? What a good gig. So the next one in the EC collections is going to be another wood book right you've already set the one that's coming uh, in december yeah the next one out i think is johnny craig and we're actually going back to the very earliest johnny craig stories because he's another one of the holdovers from the mc Gaines years he was working for Gaines before he died in that boating accident so we're going all the way back and it turns out that uh, johnny craig drew the first ec horror story oh that appeared in a title called moon girl <laughs> Oh, right, because there was a couple of transitional issues for each of those comics before they actually went to the new trend. Right, the crime comics introduced the Vault Keeper and the Crypt Keeper. Right, that's right. And um, so they had these experimental stories, and then after one or two issues, they said, well, let's just let's just go all out. And that's when they came out with uh, uh, the Crypt of Terror and the Vault of Horror and the Haunted Fear. But the the Craig book is 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 really terrific if you're if you're the kind of person who likes to look at an artist and, and watch them develop. This is the book for that because we see Craig at the very beginning of his EC career, and he's drawing westerns and he's drawing romance, uh, and then it takes you up through, and then he does a lot of crime stories. They were doing they had two big crime titles, so he does a lot of work for them, and then as we get to towards the end of the book, we see his first work for the new trend horror stories, the horror books. 
So if you if you like following an artist's development, you can see them on the page like, oh, I got this part figured out. <laughs> oh, I know how to do this now. And then and then suddenly, and then there's this kind of this ballooning of of these effects that he's finding that work for him, and he starts to incorporate them into his work more and more. And you you can you can if you look at that book, you you can see it going wow. from the beginning to the end. Yeah. Of that that okay. particular book for Johnny Craig, I think, is a really significant book for anybody who who studies that kind of thing that sounds so interesting yeah hmm. oh and then yes after that we do have uh we've already announced it we have a collection of uh, wallace wood war stories including it's called adam bomb and other stories so it includes that famous story adam yeah bomb. one of the great easy stories yeah and most of those of course were kurtzman stories you know kurtzman has uh, a writing credit and he, he did layouts for for wood Kurtzman and Wood was such a great pair. Oh, it's a terrific combination. Yeah. And um, so I'm looking forward to that book, too. And another 13 more to go. Something like that. You have another Ingalls to do, and I think another Williamson to do, if I remember right. Yeah, another Kurtzman. Another Kurtzman. Kurtzman science fiction. Nobody remembers the Kurtzman science fiction stories. That's right. (laughs) Uh, That should be interesting. I was tempted to pull out my weird science hardcover and take a look through them, but... I'm not sure I need to. Yeah. Cool. So you got another few years to go anyway. It's yeah. Two or three a year, yeah, right? Yeah, two or three. Uh, we're doing three a year. And I'm just loving it. And, and two or three a year of the Barks stuff, too. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, bring a lot of good stuff back into print. Yes, we're the publisher of the world's greatest cartoonist. Did you know that? <laughs> you know it's never changed. <laughs> you could look at the shirt I'm wearing, Love there and Rockets. Go. I mean, yeah, speaking of comics that have changed my life in some ways, Love and Rockets fills this odd position in my life where it's a book that I discovered when I was about the same age as Maggie and Hopi and doing a lot of the same things where Maggie and Hopi were doing, going to concerts and hanging out with my friends and just basically kind of wandering through life. So I'm directionless, right? And now 40 years later or so, you know, they're middle-aged and I'm middle-aged and I find I could completely relate to them. And when they see their friends, there's a bitter sweetness to it and they have shared stories and shared adventures. It just makes seeing their, their lives so much more meaningful. The book that moved me more than anything I can remember was The Love Bunglers, where so much of Maggie's life starts to come out. Aren't we all love bunglers in a way? Yeah, we're all love bunglers in a way. We all have this lost love for someone like Speedy or someone, and we all have our his our secrets. And oh, yeah, it that that book affected me more than anything I think I've read in fifteen years. Jaime and um, Gilbert and Mario came to us just trying to get a review at the beginning. You were around when that first. When the first uh, Love and Rockets came out, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I couldn't tell you how excited we were at the office. Gary and Kim especially were dueling about writing introductions for the first couple of issues. Yeah, Gary's review of Love and Rockets number one is one of the most famous comic reviews ever, <laughs> <laughs> for what it's worth. Uh, you know, I was I, when we were trying to promote the first issue of Love and Rockets, we had some copies of the edition that, that the pros had printed of it, which I understand goes for a lot of money these days. Yeah, I have a copy I bought. And, for um, crazy. So we were mailing out little promotional packages to the various distributors and, and major bookstore, direct market bookstore people. 
And so I just, you know, took a razor blade and sliced up all those uh, original printing love and rockets <laughs> and shoved one or two pages into each package oh, to give sad. people a... <laughs> Great and sad at the same time, I guess. <laughs> so that's my, my story about desecrating. Uh... <laughs> well, we all had fantasies about changing the world when we were younger. Oh, absolutely. That book yeah. actually did change the world in yeah. some ways. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think love and rockets has been, had, had a huge influence. Yeah. And I mean, I, it's not just my opinion. You can talk to Howard Chaikin or you know lots of artists who who will cite that now as a, as a major influence. Now, hooray for them! Yeah. I, I was glad to be in on the beginning of it and have a small role to play. So glad that we were able to uh, to do something for these guys. <laughs> Oh, thank you.